This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to introduce the third edition of the Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion. This latest version offers enhanced images with immersive audio content for each section, making it an unparalleled educational resource. We've expanded our content with new chapters covering topics like MIS, oncology, OBGYN, urology, and more. You can find the book in both print and ebook formats on Amazon. Get ready to elevate your knowledge and achieve top Absite scores with the all-new Behind the Knife Absite Podcast Companion, an indispensable partner on your path to surgical excellence. Good luck on the upcoming Absite exam and dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. My name is Jessica Millar, general surgery resident at the University of Michigan, and I'm joined today by Nina Clark and John Williams, another one of our wonderful BTK Education Fellows. Additionally, we're joined by Dr. Mike Anglesby, who's a professor of surgery at the University of Michigan, and Dr. Erica Bisgard, an assistant professor in the Division of Trauma and Burn Surgery at the University of Washington. Now, you may have heard our previous episode with these two wonderful guests talking about mentorship specifically geared towards medical students. But in this episode today, we're going to talk about what research should look like, especially, again, from a medical student's perspective. So thank you so much once again, Dr. Anglesby and Dr. Bisgard, for being here. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to get this episode started with asking the question of why should medical students do research? I know recently we've been re- reading through a ton of residency applications and research is very prominent on all of these applications. So why should students be involved in research during their time in medical school? So I think there's a lot of reasons to get involved as a medical student. I think firstly, to learn more about what you're going into and what's available in that field. So There's so many areas of research that are ongoing. There's no way to possibly know them all, especially coming in as a medical student. There are so many things you can learn about, different kinds of works that you don't even know you're interested in yet because you don't know it exists. So from first point to just expand your world and your horizons of what's going on. I think within medicine, there's a lot of research happening. You need to know how to read it to stay up to date with the literature. And I think starting as a medical student, you kind of learn those processes in a way to build your fundamental understanding of what research is, how it's done, what it means when you read these trials, and when you finish your training and go into practice, how to implement those trials. So those are a couple reasons I've got. Yeah, Dr. Biscard, that was a great answer. And I would be just to add that programs can count, but they can't necessarily read. So productivity is shows engagement and engagement intimates successful house officer in an academic setting. So I think having more kind of stuff on your CV definitely helps. There's no way around it. It is a bit of an arms race. And every year it gets a little more competitive. I mean, I say competitive because it's the same humans, right? But everyone's more accomplished. I, I 
one paper from out of the rep lab <laughs> and I got a tenure track faculty job. And now most medical students have that much. So, so it's just, there's more expectations around productivity. You, you have to play the game, so to speak. Yeah, that's really insightful. I think it is important to recognize that the landscape for academic productivity is changing as the years go by. One thing that I think when I was a medical student, I really uh, wasn't privy to or maybe struggled with is that there's all different types of medical and surgical research that are happening. And so I think it's worth taking a second to talk about those different types, because I certainly didn't know that there's anything more than mixing test tubes in a lab somewhere when it came to research. Nowadays, we have research in the different themes of basic science, translational science, outcomes research, education research, health services research, all these different things. And so I think if it's possible to just talk about a little bit of uh, the different types of research that are out there very briefly, just so that medical students can understand that even if you might not be somebody that's interested in doing lab work, there's still a lot of opportunities out there to look into. Yeah. So Dr. Engels, maybe you want to go first, because I think your research is a little bit more on the traditional path than what I do. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I'm old enough that the only option was basic science when I was a kid, so to speak. And my first grant was in health services research. But then that was kind of early to that field. I think good programs, good departments, good organizations respect the diversity of different kind of research types you want to, you know, it's kind of like building a sports team where you need big people to block and fast people to catch the ball and I don't know anything about football, but Dr. Dimick tells me that's what you need. So you need basic scientists and nothing but respect for people who do foundational scientific work. But you have to, it's about a one to 20 productivity ratio, maybe two to two to 20. So you're just not going to be as productive, but most sophisticated kind of folks will appreciate that basic science papers worth 10 health services research papers, a good basic science paper. That's one thing. Then there's health services research, which is a lot of what I've done over my career. Education research is getting more and more popular. I think particularly if you do advanced kind of education methods or qualitative stuff, it's actually quite labor intensive. It can be very, to do it well, it's hard. And then I think there's a growing interest in, I call it like advocate or ad, advocate scholarship. So people who have a deep passion for some foundational problem, whether it be women's health, health equity, like some of the candidly, some of the dumpster fires in American healthcare. And they bring that passion to the table. They get basic health services or research skills, but they also have a, a advocacy or policy focus where they really want to drive change. So those are the four kind of domains that come to mind for me. I guess the fifth one is like run in the organization. Like most of our organizations more and more are essentially run by physicians. And many of my colleagues over the year have kind of gone into the running the health system type jobs and that's a different skill set. And you can learn that as a student and a resident also and take that professional trajectory. Yeah. And the only other thing I'd have to add to that is sort of piggybacking off that last point, but implementation and how to get the ideas from, I think of research as a spectrum from the bench and like really hardcore science in the lab all the way up to outcomes-based things, database research, up to more qualitative and softer, softer in your quotes, sciences and implementation of how to take that stuff that they're doing on the bench and through translational work, then get it into clinical. And then once it's in clinical, get it to actually be functional in a system. So it's this huge spectrum and there's research opportunities in each faction of that. It's a great point. I think implementation is hard and poorly suited for trainees. So I spend most of my time doing that now. It's a daily punch in the face, but I don't need, you know, you don't need to write any more papers at some point. I think it is very reasonable in your early research career 
to try to focus on observing, if not even admiring the problem and not trying to fix the problem. I think so many brilliant young medical students really want to lean in with a fix, which I respect. And it motivates me, makes me feel guilty with all my our power and privilege. People like Eric and I got to like actually at some point start fixing some problems. But I think it's a bit naive as a student to make that your primary goal. I think your job as a student and a resident is to get tools in your tool belt to put yourself in a situation where you can fix problems in the future. You have to be a little bit selfish. You can't just try to fix the problems. I think it's okay just to really d- deeply try to understand them, get the skills you need to, and advanced methods to understand them and leave the fixing to, to folks who are kind of already where they kind of want to go, so to speak. That's a great point. And something I've thought about a lot, even just in my lab time as a resident, is is this a career goal and a career arc that I want to solve over the course of the next 50 years? Or is this something that I can accomplish within this pretty limited chunk of time that I have that's going to get me to the next step along that path of that career arc, so to speak? So I, I think that having realism when you're approaching research problems or research questions has been, it's hard and it's hard to kind of limit your hopes and dreams to, you know, a discrete thing that you can accomplish within your limited time and available resources. So I I think that also leads nicely into our next series of questions about kind of what are appropriate research goals for a medical student who's getting involved with a research mentor? Is it all about publishing, 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 or what other things can they add to their CV and, and add lines to their application eventually? Uh, and really get out of a, a research experience. Yeah, so for medical students, there is an opportunity to just have the experiences and have that on these applications of, I worked in this person's lab, with the end goal obviously being papers and written productivity, but just having that experience a lot of times will count in their favor. I think it's most important, like Dr. Inglesby said, to learn some skills. And until you know what is out there, you can't know if you like it or you don't. So for example, when I was an undergrad, I had as part of a scholarship, a research grant to work in a basic science lab. And I worked in biochemistry lab, pipetting stuff. And I hated it. I did not like it. I was not suited for that work. I'm not meticulous in that way. And I knew that bench work was not for me. I didn't get excited about it. It was not you know, I'd present my experiments to my PI and she'd get so excited. And I was like, I don't feel that at all. So, but I wouldn't have known that without having done that experience. And then in medical school, working on some outcome stuff and some injury prevention stuff and working with other mentors who did more education stuff. And you don't have to necessarily pick one and stay. I'm going to do this particular kind of research at choosing it now. And this is the goal forever. That's not the expectation. We want you to learn the different methods of doing it and get as much exposure to the different areas so that you can learn. And even though there's differences between them, there's some basic fundamentals of in bench work, in clinical outcomes work, in education research that are the same across the board. So really learning those fundamentals should be the goal. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's some kind of myth that you're a student, you have to do a bunch of research so you can go to a place where you can be a resident, go to all the best places. So then you can be faculty so you can write research grants. And it turns out like, I don't know what percent of surgeons at academic medical centers actually have a research grant, but I'm thinking it's about 5%. <laughs> so most of them are doing other stuff, running the health system, educating, operating, being the best doctor in the hospital. All these things are pathways you can take, but getting those skills that Dr. Biscard was just mentioning, 
will make you better at all of those things. Like all my friends who like are the president of the health systems, they were health services researchers and they got really good at data. They understand healthcare finance and then they took that pathway. So my friends who are the best doctors I know, similarly, they have the skills, they really understand the problems in their field and they don't do research on that, but they drive change in a field based on kind of managed data. So their foundational skills, which no matter what pathway you're going to take, you don't have to grow up and have five R01s. There's infinite pathways towards fun and success. But I think when you're in your early stages, doing research is the best way to get those tools in your tool belt. Yeah. And I think that's so helpful that highlighting that acquiring the skills is such a critical aspect of the process. Just speaking from personal experience, one thing I will add is that doing research in something that you like is so important because if you're doing research in something that you're not interested in or something that you don't like, it is really painful. But I do think that part of that is sometimes trying to do research in something that you do like, but not know how to do it is also a big challenge. And so having a skills focus is just as important as having a, a topic focus, I think. And I think that's a really good takeaway point for, for folks that are interested in getting into research. And just to tag that, John, I think balancing the two, right? Balancing the skill acquisition with the topic and, and content that you're interested in is sometimes really hard to find at a single institution. So I think having an understanding when you're going after a project is like, is this adding to my skill toolbox or is this like, the field that I really want to practice in or get exposure to or think about. And and sometimes those things will align and that's a great research project. And sometimes they don't, which is also okay, I think. It's also okay if you think you like something and then turns out you don't later on. I thought I liked basic science. I It's okay. It's not what I want to do. But those experiences are also sometimes just as important figuring out what you don't like. So if you find yourself in your lab and you're like, this isn't what I thought it was, that's not time wasted. That is still very valuable time in kind of figuring out and understanding what it is that you do like and what does make you passionate. Jumping then into our next question. So hopefully we've convinced everybody at this point that they should do research for a multitude of reasons. And kind of similar to what we talked about in our last episode, we need mentorship. We need research mentors. How do you go about finding those mentors? I think a lot of the things we talked about in our last episode will still apply, but specifically if there's anything that you have for research mentors in particular? How do you find ones that are going to be most helpful for students? Most medical schools have programs that are available to help get you involved. And whether that is a summer research grant or a research program or a blast email that comes out that I know we get at our institution of, hey, if you have any research for a medical student, please submit it to this repository so they can go and look. So I imagine those sorts of resources are pretty readily available in different forms at the different schools. I think that's a great place to start because Googling a faculty member and reading their CV and trying to sort out what they actually do is, I still have trouble doing that. So trying to do that as a medical student, I think is a little bit of a overreach, but starting with the school and starting with those sorts of programs as they're available, I think it's a great place to start. And one thing, you know, the students who go to schools that don't have a like deep bench of faculty or residents who are doing research, I think that's a, some of the students I've worked with over the years, they end up, they're among the most inspired if they can actually kind of get it done. That might be cause to take a year off of medical school, get a dual degree or spend a year in an established place doing full-time research if you want to pursue academic medicine, because it's hard to make the jump from a medical school environment where where it's not kind of a sophisticated research environment to a residency that had that. And having interviewed thousand res students for residency, it, it, you know, within, within 
five sentences, you kind of get a sense of, of someone's lack of better term sophistication. So I think that's a unique challenge for many students as most surgeons operate, take care of patients. And it can be hard to drum up research opportunities unless you're at a place where that's a big uh, priority for the organization. Understanding my next question might vary a little bit based off of your particular medical school's curriculum, but what would you say is a good timeline? Like when should students kind of start having these conversations and start looking for research mentors and doing research and publishing? What is you for students that you guys have mentored that have been most successful? What does that timeline kind of look like? I think starting in the first year, not the first day, but within the first year, because as you all know, projects take a little bit more time than you think pretty much always. And in those first two years, you're studying and you have all the tests and stuff, but your time is still kind of your own. You have classes and labs and things, but otherwise you have a little bit more of a free schedule compared to when you start your clerkships and that change of, you know, getting to the hospital early in the morning and leaving late and then still having to study for a shelf. You have a lot less time, especially in that third year. So I think starting in that first year is to start feeling it out and getting involved and seeing so you have some time that when you move into your fourth year and you actually have maybe a dedicated research time, things have already started rolling and you're not starting from square one in your fourth year right when you're trying to get those residency applications together. I do agree. Nothing counts after like September, whatever the thing is due. I think it's October 1 now. So it has to be kind of, and in, in press doesn't count. So abstracts count as much as papers when it comes to the ARIS application, in my opinion, unless it's like a JAMA paper. So you do want to be, if, if the goal is productivity, you want to do that earlier. I think it's important though to mention that having been involved in medical student education for a long time, some students really struggle. Like medical school is hard, really hard. And if you don't have the bandwidth, feeling the additional expectation that I need to write five papers because John Smith wrote five and, he, and I want to be a dermatologist. Or It is a, research as a medical student is a side hustle. It is, you're not your primary reason for existing. So you have to take care of yourself first and foremost. I will say, as I've kind of matured in trying to understand like, people I want to work with, research productivity has become less priority in character and professionalism are really becoming more and more. And I think programs are getting better at judging that. We all have a long way to go. So I think it's still important, don't get me wrong, but you thriving overall is is the number one priority. I've seen so many students who kind of lose their proverbial mind because they feel like they're not doing enough research. And I don't know, I didn't do any as a medical student. I pretty much love my job. Yeah. And I think that's really important to highlight. I know this episode is obviously themed around talking about doing research, but uh, it's really important to remember that every single one of you goes to the medical school to become a doctor first. And so you really need to prioritize learning how to become a doctor and taking good care of patients. That should absolutely be the number one reason why you're spending your time doing what you're doing. And the research, as Dr. Anglesby said, is a kind of a side hustle, but it should never take precedent over the clinical care of patients and learning how to become the best doctor you can possibly be. Because research opportunities, they'll come and go throughout your career, wherever it is you are, but you only go to medical school once and you learn only learn the content that medical school will teach you once. And so I think it's important to make sure that that's a central concept. I want to restate that, John, because such a key point is if you're not a good doctor, then there are no opportunities. <laughs> so it's an expectation that you're going to be a great surgeon if you want to become a resident at a, at a good academic program. Conversely, you want to get hired at a good place, there's an expectation you're going to be a great surgeon. That's like entry-level expectation, right? 
kind of like if you want to play on the college soccer team, you probably be able to run. Like there's an expectation you can run fast. We can teach you how to kick and how to do the other things soccer players do, but there's a certain baseline expectation. So yeah, that is definitely the priority. And you're not a bad human for wanting to focus most of your attention on just you know being the best surgeon you can be. I think that kind of speaks to a lot of what we've talked about regarding accountability and communication, right? I, I've never found a mentor throughout med school or residency for that matter, where if I get really busy clinically or personally and have to bump a deadline back, like it's very rarely been an issue. And I, I think people are in general extremely accommodating and understanding that med school is an incredibly busy time. And so if you set a deadline with a mentor and you're not going to reach it, I think just reaching out and saying, hey, I'm busy. I'm going to work on this, but I'm not going to make it to, you know, this Friday like we hoped. So I think that is completely understandable. And I know when I've worked with medical students and they've gotten busy and not been able to reach deadlines, then I, I, I think it's totally fine as long as you're communicating those things. What I think gets in the way is when they drop off without telling anybody. And even then, it's like I think most people are pretty understanding, but it, it really helps to just communicate that kind of stuff because I think we've all been there. It absolutely does. And like I had a student who emailed me who was working on a project and said, hey, I'm taking step one on this day. So for the next eight weeks, you will not hear from me. And that is totally fine in the expectation because that's such a crux part of the medical education process. So yes, absolutely communicate it. We all understand it. We were all there. We remember it, unfortunately. So it's absolutely fine to keep that open and prioritize the schooling and the learning first and keeping this as the extra. Yeah. And I usually will always recommend to students be very realistic with your time. Like you said, Dr. Biscard, these projects take a lot longer than you anticipate. Life happens. So I usually am totally fine if I give something to a student. They're like, hey, it might take me three weeks. Like, that's okay. Like, I'd rather students be honest and, and kind of pretty realistic with their time. I think when when I've set up successful research mentorship relationships in the past, I've kind of honed the questions that I'm asking as I've done more and more of these projects. And so I'm curious y'all's thoughts on these questions and anything else you'd add to the list. But when I'm starting to work with somebody on a research project, the questions I think about nowadays are what are the resources that I'm going to have access to that including data, assistance with analysis, any software, funds for publication fees, things like that. I really have been trained now to early days talk about authorship and order of authorship and if I'm going to be first author, what that means, if I'm going to be a middle author, what that means, that kind of thing early and set that up before I even start working on a project. Uh, and then setting some of these expectations around communication. How frequently are we going to meet? What are we going to do in terms of communicating and, and accomplishing action items? Does that person prefer email versus text for certain things? That kind of stuff. So that's what I think about when I go into one of these meetings. Is there anything you guys would add? Now, I mean, any faculty who expects to be the first author on a student project is probably not a faculty you would want to work with. In a perfect world, it would be a resident like a pyramid scheme. There's a faculty, a resident, and a student, and the student can really get day-to-day -day mentorship from the resident, and the resident would be the senior author, and the student would be the first author. I think that's the best scheme to try to balance out credit, and, but I love the establishing expectations. That's hard. You know, hey, am I going to be the first author? You might have to do that a little bit from kind of getting the word on the street on how it is to deal with that resident or faculty. 
We've talked a little bit about the importance of research to the residency application. And just to stick some numbers on that, I looked at the most recent, I think it was the AAMC publishes the average resident who who matches. And it frankly gave me some anxiety <laughs> because I think right now, at least from the most recently published data on their website, the average general surgery resident who successfully matches has about six abstracts, presentations, or publications. And they loop all of those together, which is, I think, a, a good thing. And then there's way more for certain subspecialties like plastic surgery, vascular surgery, or cardiothoracic. So I think these numbers are really scary. Um, but I do think that a, this is an average, and that includes some people who are going to be extremely prolific researchers even before or during medical school, and some people who probably have zero to one or two publications, which is probably more in the realm of, of expected during a two-year or three-year stint um, before you start to apply. I also think that one thing that I was told when I was applying to residency was to have kind of a pitch. And if your pitch is that you want to be a super hardcore academic and do research and do a seven-year program, then you probably should have some research to back it up in your application. But some people are also going to be more inclined towards education or volunteerism and that kind of thing. And they can probably get away with less research. I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that or if you review applications in that mindset and how you balance that with the, the breadth and depth of these experiences that students bring to the table. Absolutely. I'm deep in residency application review at the moment, so I'm very versed in the ARIS things. I think these numbers can be extremely intimidating, but like you said, Nina, there are people applying who have or getting their MD-PhDs who have 30 publications when they come in. So that gets averaged in. That's obviously the outlier, but that's part of this average. And I think as long as you have, like I said earlier, the experience, you don't have to have 10 high impact factor journal publications coming in to residency. That's not the expectation at all. Insofar as I'm concerned, the presentation at Med Student Research Day, that's a presentation you did, counts the same as the publications you have. It's the experiences we want you to have in a realistic lens. Unless you've gotten a PhD or done some other significant time outside, I think that's not the expectation. We just want to see that you've had that experience. And also, if there's not a lot of research on the application, but you've done a lot of work in DEI and you've done a lot of advocacy work and you have all this other stuff, that counts too. Not more, not less. It still counts. And we're looking at the uh, applications holistically to include all those different experiences. Because if you're not, if you're planning on going into a community practice, you don't need 30 papers. Like it's just, you don't need it. Sometimes it's hard to know, but it's kind of a checkbox, but it's not a make or break. I would reinforce one those great points. The Student Research Day, the local chapter of the American College of Surgeons, the yada, yada, yada. So you have to seek opportunities for yourself and a good mentor will help you do that to present. Totally fair game for local meetings to present multiple times. You can build up a portfolio. It really is hard on the ARAS application unless you really look hard to differentiate whether it's a JAMA paper or a research presentation at the Moses Gun Research Conference. So the numbers do count. I mean, to a certain degree, the numbers do count. So there's you're, having a lot of research is never going to hinder you when you apply. And I will say for the elevator pitch, don't put anything on your application that you were not prepared to talk about. So if you worked on a basic science paper sometime in undergrad, absolutely include that. Maybe go back and read the abstract so that if you get asked about it, you don't say, I don't know, because that that looks bad. If you have something listed and you cannot speak to it at all, 
So knowing everything you put on, knowing a little bit about it and having that one liner of we did a research project looking at X thing. I was involved in Y way. And this is what I learned from it. That's all you need. It should be one sentence very quick, but at least be able to speak to it to some know what it is when it's on there. When you get to that interview phase, everything that you put on the application is fair game. I think some advice that I got when I was a medical student and a residency interviewee is that, yes, the surgeons can count but can't read as easily is like a common phrase that's thrown around. But if I think what's even more important at the interview stage is that you're able to speak enthusiastically about the work that you've done. And so I think that this kind of goes back to this concept of really trying to seek out research and things that interest you, because those are the things that you're going to be excited to talk about on that interview day and not just kind of go through the motions of re reiterating your abstract from seven years ago. I think if you can faithfully speak to something that you're truly interested in and excited to talk about, then that really comes out to the interviewer that's talking to you. And you can really gain a lot of points, so to speak, by demonstrating your enthusiasm for a topic rather than just the scoreboard of abstracts that you might have put on your application. Yeah, I was very surprised at what my interviewers picked out from my long application to talk about, and it was not what I would have expected. So I think weaving each of these things, we've talked a little bit about how every project can really bring something to you as a person and as a future surgical researcher or not researcher for that matter. And I think being able to weave each of those projects into your story as an applicant, because somebody is going to pick out the random project you did as an undergrad to to nitpick on and, and talk to you about. So having something you got out of each of those projects, I think, is is a really helpful way to approach your interviews, even if it's not what you want to do long term. I did a cardiology research project in between undergrad and medical school that was the thing that like almost every one of my interviewers decided to talk about. So I had to do some creative thinking about how to weave that into my eventual decision to apply into surgery. I think we've gotten some incredible tips from you guys. Thank you both for being part of this. Just to kind of review, I think people can get into research projects for a ton of different reasons. Learn how to read and interact with research is a critical part of being a surgeon, uh, especially if you're going to go into anything academic. It's also probably important to add to your CV, and realistically, it's important for the residency match. So getting involved in research projects as a student help you down the line when you're eventually applying. You'll learn about methods. You can get exposure to people and things that you're interested in doing and learning about. And so there's a lot of reasons to get involved in research projects. You can also leverage that into these long-term research and mentorship relationships that we've talked about over the past couple of episodes. Remember that you're in school to be a doctor first and research comes second, and you should always prioritize becoming the best physician and clinician that you can be. But also hold yourself accountable when you're signing on for these projects, being realistic about your goals, being realistic about your ability to accomplish to-do items and action items. And communicating that realism to your mentor is going to be critical and make you more successful. It can be really intimidating to look at the average number of publications for successful applicants. But I think that having a depth of experience and the ability to talk about your projects and your work over the past few years on your interviews is really what's going to get you to the next step in your careers. Thank you, Drs. Inglesby and Biscard, for joining us. We hope that this was helpful for our listeners who are at the start of their research journeys and everyone dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening.
Until next time, dominate the day. 